0: Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. On today's show, we take a closer look at freedom of speech and what that means on a campus like the University of Arizona.
1: Colleges and universities, either by law or or more often, um, just by um, virtue and value have decided to go even beyond what the uh, First Amendment would traditionally protect.
0: We speak with a First Amendment expert, a campus First Amendment monitor, and two members of a panel who this week discussed the First Amendment during what was billed as a campus conversation. In March, two Border Patrol agents were invited to speak to the Criminal Justice Club on the campus of the University of Arizona. Other students found out and started a protest outside the room. According to the police report, that protest was loud enough to force nearby teachers to move their classes outside. The protesters followed the agents to their vehicle. Three of the protesters were eventually charged with misdemeanors. Those charges were dropped, but the anger about the incident and debate about First Amendment rights on campus continues. The university held a campus conversation about the incident this week. But before we get to that, let's back up and talk about what the First Amendment right to free speech is and isn't. Jane Bambauer is a First Amendment expert at the University of Arizona James E. Rogers College of Law. We began our conversation talking about the history of free speech on college and university campuses.
1: Historically, and especially in the last 50, 60 years, The college campus was the embodiment of First Amendment values. It was a place where in order to show and preserve sort of higher order thinking and especially critical thinking, it had tolerance for every viewpoint uh, and it was uh, meant to be a place where, um, you know, everybody could come and say what they think.
0: That training for critical thinking, is that why colleges and universities are viewed a little differently when it comes to free speech as maybe a, a larger free speech space than just across the street outside the university?
1: The public street is also actually a place that has significant First Amendment protection. But you're right that uh, colleges and universities, either by law or um, or more often, Um, just by um, virtue and value, have decided to go even beyond what the uh, First Amendment would traditionally protect by, for example, one reason faculty members have tenure is so that their potentially provocative and controversial research can go forward without threat or intimidation. So so that's the sort of thing, you know, preserving uh, even Even privileges, even beyond just a a pure liberty to say what you think, is uh, something that makes university campuses special.
0: We all talk about the First Amendment and what it means. What does it actually mean in the law?
1: The First Amendment restricts government from interfering with speech or uh, expressive conduct, but uh, only to the extent that that speech does not wind up doing sort of irrevocable harm. So within the First Amendment, there is some balancing that has to be done, but usually this balancing uh, is established with an expectation that speech is usually and presumptively not dangerous and not harmful to others. So that means that in terms of universities. Public universities, in addition to just having their own values that they might want to inculcate, are also under this requirement to not interfere with speech, except under those special circumstances.
0: In those special circumstances, I always heard it explained as you have free speech, but that doesn't mean you can yell fire in a crowded theater, for example.
1: That colloquialism comes from a, an opinion uh, written by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, but the interesting thing about it is a great example because it illustrates precisely that there are certain types of speech that have effects that are damaging, immediately damaging. Uh, and that's all true. But the concept was introduced in a concurring opinion when a political dissident was prosecuted successfully. Uh, this is during World War I. So I think that's a nice reminder that the concept of harm or even imminent harm can be taken too far and used to justify um, the suppression of speech that isn't actually dangerous.
0: We're talking with Jane Bombauer with the University of Arizona Rogers College of Law. Is there legal guidance for colleges and universities, or really anybody, but we're focusing on colleges and universities, on how to deal with the heckler's veto when that stops being an additional exercise of First Amendment free speech and it becomes harassing and potentially dangerous?
1: The law of the heckler's veto is a little bit unclear or unsettled right now i mean even the concept does, it doesn't really come from first amendment precedent it's sort of a summary of the types of cases that have arisen so colleges they have some guidance but not perfect guidance a lot of their operations wind up having to be kind of reactive and learning from experience. Uh, we do know, though, that I mean, there have been cases where um, the Supreme Court or circuit courts have um, invalidated efforts to to restrict programming. Uh, Because of fear of a hostile audience, that was the language that used to be used. Is that oh well, the audience might be so hostile that you know, violence could emerge from from listening to a speech that they don't agree with. So these hostile audience cases in the early part of the 20th century, the governments sometimes won, but over time they won fewer and fewer. And um, today, it's it's basically considered uh, a vanishingly small uh, number of you know, circumstances that could justify that kind of suppression for that reason. But on the other hand, in terms of what colleges or universities should do in order to protect uh, speakers and events from, um, from the disruption of protesters, there that's a little bit unchartered. So that is, um, we, we know that the university um, generally cannot prevent an event from happening, but to what extent do they need to mediate the event and, and manage it in real time? Um, or to what extent do universities need to do something like what the University of Arizona is cooperating with right now, where, um, where they provide sort of ex-post enforcement if a protest seems to go, you know, or at least arguably goes too far and crosses a line into um, some kind of um, punishable behavior.
0: When it comes to the government and free speech in the universities, President Trump recently signed an executive order saying, in a nutshell, if a university restricts free speech, it could lose federal funding. Is this a new route we're seeing government go, where they're officially getting involved with free speech?
1: There does seem to be a new movement and new new interest in terms of the national landscape on on these issues, uh, and you know, on the surface, I think that President Trump's initiative looks perfectly fit and and you know matches the goals of college institutions. But to the extent that it may be motivated by you know a particular viewpoint that the administration sees as being more likely to be suppressed, and and by the way, you know, so so that. Um, Popular understanding is that it tends to be conservatives that are most whose speech is most threatened, Uh, and uh, you know although there are definitely documented instances of that, um, there are also a lot of instances of you know the the sort of ideological left um, taking heat from the universities, and so so to the extent that this new movement or new initiative by the president is intended to to nudge universities to be less cooperative, respectful, or whatnot with, um, with viewpoints that come from the left, then it is probably a misstep. But like I said, on, the, on its face, it looks like a good, a good recitation of values.
0: Thanks for sitting down with us and exploring as much as we can in our time some of the nuances of the First Amendment.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: That was Jane Bambauer, a First Amendment expert from the University of Arizona Rogers College of Law. This week, we're talking about the First Amendment on university campuses. Earlier this week, the University of Arizona held what was called a campus conversation. It came from that March incident and the protests that rocked campus in the month following. University of Arizona President Robert Robbins began the session with a statement. I've talked to many people Uh, inside uh, the U of A community and those outside in the community of uh, Southern Arizona, and I've learned a lot. And I'll tell you that there have been mistakes made. Uh, I am very focused on uh, how we learn from these mistakes, and today is meant to be uh, continuing that process of listening, For two hours, students, faculty, and staff members told a panel of university professors and administrators, sometimes very pointedly, what they want on campus when it comes to the First Amendment and other issues.
1: On behalf of the Coalition Arizona 3, what we would really like is for our president and for others, um, including um, UAPD, to apologize to our students, to the Arizona 3, for how it was handled. (laughs) I mean, that's one of many things we're asking for. But at the beginning, without an apology, it feels difficult to move forward. As someone who prepares bilingual teachers to make our classrooms more inclusive for immigrant and undocumented students, how can I reassure my students that they are safe on this campus with Border Patrol and ICE?
0: Professors Nolan Cabrera and Anna Ochoa O'Leary were both panelists at the discussion. We began our discussion with their impression of the
2: campus conversation. I think it speaks directly to to how much injury has been done to this community. I know that a lot of people were really uncomfortable um, with the social demonstrations that were happening. Um, but f- and even as somebody who was directly targeted and talked about um, during that during that time. I, I kept seeing it as if they're this angry in this situation and they're this frustrated and they're dedicating this amount of time, that is equivalent to the amount of hurt that they are experiencing and the community pain that has been brought by this larger issue. And that it's not just by one acute event. It's been simmering for years and years and years of each previous administration just passing this over and not really taking it as seriously and the harm that it's doing to the community as seriously. So um, in some respects, I think it was important to get that out there because otherwise we end up saying, well, it's, you know, okay, here was a, an acute event and now it's passed. And for me, it's like, no, 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 this thing, it just keeps building up and building up and it's going to keep boiling over, like we can't just, the end of the year is gonna hit, this issue is still gonna be here when academic year 2019, 2020 starts.
3: In addition to echoing a lot of what Nolan said, um, you know, you realize how much this this step is so important. Uh, So at some point, you know, we don't know where to start, uh, but this was a start and well, you know, it could go either way, you know, it can make things worse or it can make things better. Um, I think the jury is still out in terms of that, but uh, at least it's a start. And I think anytime there's a start, uh, you know, it, it's at least it's a start. You know, and I think of when, uh, say, uh, you, you have a clogged artery. You know, you've got to get the blood flowing, and uh, you've got to dislodge the stalemate. Uh, mixing metaphors here, but uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, y- you can't you can't be at a stalemate indefinitely. Something's got to budge.
0: We're talking with Ana Ochoa O'Leary and Nolan Cabrera, both uh, professors at the University of Arizona and both members of the panel that took part in the campus conversation. Do either of you have any hope that this is the one that unclogs the artery and maybe there will be some movement this time?
2: I never invest... um, hope in in an organization or in a specific administration, because there's too many competing demands. So I I think that there's possibility that definitely wasn't here with, say, President Hart, but I don't, I'm not going to, I can't look into my crystal ball and say it will actually happen. Um, Because in many respects, part of the reason why we're having This is a broader conversation is specifically because a number of activist organizations have have come together and really directly disrupted and agitated here. Um, And so I think the larger question is, how much are people willing to keep pushing on that? And it's an incredibly... uncomfortable space to be in. But the point is that exactly what you said, if it's another conversation, if it's another conversation, that's exactly what happened in the previous administration. We had months of campus dialogue, listening tours, diversity task force, and then very little came out of it tangibly. And so it's going to require more direct uh, movement and pushing on this to keep it going. And what that exactly looks like, I don't know. Anna, do you see
0: anything coming out of this campus conversation, or especially because we're at the end of the academic year, our seniors uh, on the UA campus are about to go out into the world, uh, hopefully have jobs, uh, and most of the students will be gone in another week and won't be back until August. Do you see this moving forward, or will this be the end of the uh, the end of it?
3: I think there's enough momentum, and there is enough commitment on the on those who participated in the planning of the event. And, um, you know, the fact is that we still live where we live. We, the context, chances are very high that it will not change. So uh, I I think to answer your question, it will depend largely on the topics that will be proposed uh, as part of the next, as a series. At this point, we don't know what that looks like, uh, which is, which kind of addresses uh, that uh, one of the concerns of of the activists on on the floor yesterday, uh, that they weren't brought into any type of uh, you know that that their thoughts about the matter were not sought out, um, and I think it wasn't clear. Be- well, that was not the that was not the time and place to do so much you know a lot of explanation, but um, I think there'll be time uh, for that. There'll be uh, incentive to do that. Um, I think some of these difficult topics if the way that I understand it these conversations will be over very difficult uh, complex matters uh, so I think what we heard and as we review the the video um, I think some of those will will jump out at us and I think that's that's important I think the timing in terms of um, you know the summer is is drawing close it, you know that's a that's a really interesting. Um, you know, that, this is an interesting period because at least this com- the, this first conversation happened before the semester. Usually what we've seen, you know, in the activist world is that administrators, if they are on the cowardly side, they will, uh, you know, postpone it so that people leave, students leave, and you start the semester and things get way late and you never know anything else about that. So I think I think that we had it before. It was pulled together quickly. Uh, I think it says a lot about the commitment of those planning the, these next conversations uh, that this this will in fact happen. So I think that that's a good that's a good indication. Um, also, I think what's really important is, um, you know, if you've had students, you know, when you show them a like a a film or a documentary that is distressing, that is uh, difficult to digest, you know, there should always be that period where you reflect on what you saw and come to terms with uh, the feelings or angst that you might have had. Uh, The summer repose might be something that we all sit back and after the chatter of yesterday, we will, you know, kind of think more clearly uh, and come back in the fall refreshed. And hopefully those other, um, you know, sectors of the university community will be invited to help plan those future conversations. And I think um, then we will be on our way, I think, to having a serious conversations about complex, complex topics that we can't skirt.
0: All right. Well, thank you both for sitting down with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. That was Anna Ochoa O'Leary and Nolan Cabrera, professors on the University of Arizona campus and panel members for the Campus Conversation. So who makes sure free speech and First Amendment rights are preserved on campus? At the University of Arizona, that falls to First Amendment monitors, including Dean of Students Kendall Washington White.
4: We refer to um, our uh, colleagues and staff in the Dean of Students office um, as First Amendment monitors. It's not a a standalone position. It's a volunteer volunteer, um, opportunity for us to protect freedom of expression regardless of what side you're on. So as you know, um, the university brings a a variety of speakers to campus and for the most part, not controversial at all, but every now and then there are um, controversial and that's all in your, (laughs) what's controversial is different to everyone, but we know of the high profile um, kinds of people who come to campus and We need to anticipate what the response might be on campus, and our role is simply to uphold um, freedom of expression, um, to actually, if we know in advance of a situation, we will work with um, the parties that are coordinating it, just to get a sense of what's your plan, Who do you, who are you inviting? Is it invitation only? Is it open to the public? Because all of those questions informs us in how we are going to staff the event. And so if it's an invitation only and you have to show your cat card or whatever way, um, that doesn't require much effort on our part. But when it's a big public um, event, very controversial, then we have um, a number of volunteers um, here on campus. They're all staff members, um, primarily from the Student Affairs Division, that are there in place to help advise people how to handle the situation, um, just monitoring the room to see what the vibe is, and um, where there might be a dust up of some sort, and how what's our plan on how we're going to address that. Because we're, our goal is to not... Um, prevent people from having their event, is to help them to have a successful event.
0: What are some of the things you look for at an event, be it a a large public event? Uh, AZPM has worked with the First Amendment monitors when we've held political debates on campus. What are some of the things you look for, again, not picking a side, but making sure everybody is going to get heard?
4: We give advice to the coordinators of the event, so we're not in charge of the event in and of itself, but we provide information and um, strategies for them to manage the situation. So for example, um, Bernie Sanders was here on campus, um, was that two years ago maybe? Um, (laughs) And um, what we did is we worked with his people to ensure that security was there. Um, It's not our responsibility to make that happen, but to advise them on what steps they can take for a successful event. Um, we um, work with the police department, UAPD, to see if they have any intel on how things went when Bernie was at other campuses or, um, or, and so that we can get a sense of what kind of response people will have with these folks that come to campus. And so we use that intel. Um, we contact our colleagues at other universities um, from a dean of students to another dean of students to see what was the impact? And we learned from other people what we should look out for here. So, again, um, we had a, a, last year, I believe it was, we had a um, Not My President rally um, on the mall, and we knew what kinds of groups were gonna be there, right? <laughs> because they were on social media, they made it very easy you know, <laughs> for us to identify those groups. And then just make sure that we have a presence so that, Um, we're protecting both sides of whatever the arguments are.
0: If you, in your role as a First Amendment monitor, find that there is a problem, what's the next step? What do you do? Is it something you do afterwards? Is it something you do immediately?
4: It's situational. I mean, you know, I think what might be a problem for some people in the audience may not be an illegitimate problem for intervention to be had or, or to initiate. Initiate. Um, I think that when we know there's a problem, we will speak to the individuals. If it's a group, we'll ask for who's the um, lead, you know, who's the leader of this group, because we want to have a conversation with them about, again, what are your intentions? Here's how this might be um, become A bad situation, right? It may escalate to a point, and we don't want anyone to be hurt. We don't want, you know, we want you to have your ability to speak up and share your opinion, but we also need to make sure that other people have the option to be heard as well. So we try to reason with people. Um, When we had the Trump, uh, uh, not my president, rally on campus, there was a young man, um, UA student, who uh, showed up with a Confederate flag. And of course, that was very problematic for um, nearly everyone there. And people were really starting to surround him and get in close, really close, you know, not arms length away. And I happened to be there when that happened. And I just stood next to him and just started having a conversation with him. Um, and people, you know, the people around them, they started. Moving away because other monitors came up and said you have to give him space. But I just engaged him with in a conversation about so what's your motivation to do this? I'm curious, and and I really was curious. Like why would you show up with this um, flag, knowing what the um, experience is going to be for others? And he talked about states' rights and all of that. And and I and he said you know. Um, the Civil War was all about states' rights, and I just said, "Really? Uh, I don't think so." And he and we both laughed together about it. And and you know, he was he his behavior was fine. It was the flag that was this point that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And you know, I had a lot of colleagues say, "I I would not have been able to do that, Kendall." You know, um, you stood there and spoke with him, and I said, "Well, because I'm curious about why people." make these decisions, and he's a student. And um, he wanted his voice to be heard, and his voice was that flag. And so by me stepping in and having a conversation with him, it toned down the responses from other people. Um, And it could have gone a completely different way, but I think that how we approach people makes a difference. Um, If it's law enforcement that's doing the um, intervention, that automatically sometimes puts people in the defensive <laughs> mode. And, you know, I was just wearing a little vest <laughs> you know, our a little mu- uniform and just spoke to him um, without judgment and just asked questions about his motivations. And in that situation, it worked out. And that's how it usually happens for us.
0: Are we the only campus that has First Amendment monitors, do you know? Or is that now becoming a nationwide thing?
4: That's a great question, and I'm not sure that folks have monitors like we do. I mean, we um, recruit um, our peers here on campus to serve in that role, and again, mostly student affairs people um, because they understand that it's a huge issue and they want to be a part of the solution and helping us to maintain everyone's ability to be heard.
0: That was Kendall Washington White, one of the First Amendment monitors for the University of Arizona. And that's the buzz for this week. Ariana Brocious is the producer, Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, Andrea Kelly is the news director, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.
1: Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.